Well, good morning, everyone. Love your smiling faces. I'm here today to get to welcome you to this church. Uh, if you're new to the place, uh, I met Joseph and his family over there, his mother and his friend, and, and uh, met Sydney and anybody else here that is new. We want to welcome you especially, but we especially also welcome everybody that attends here. You could have gone any number of places on your way here today, but you decided to come to this church, and so we're glad. If you're new or if you're, you're an old person, <laughs> like me, you might need to be reminded that what this church is all about is to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, to follow Jesus, to love people, to do good. I've been trying every day when I pray to say those words, because, I mean, what else could you ask from, for God? To be transformed. And so we welcome you and trust that you feel uh, welcome today and right at home. This is my wife, Linda. What a great day you chose to come to church, because today is Soup Sunday. The first Sunday of every month is Soup Sunday, and we have all kinds of soups in the back of the uh, church here. When church is over, just get in line and help yourself. But it's also Name Tag Sunday, and that's an important thing. I think every Sunday should be Name Tag Sunday, because I don't have a very good memory. But you know, you see some people... You've probably seen them 17 years around here, and you still don't know their name. And it's like, oh my gosh, I don't think I want to talk to them. I can't think of their name. Or you think, oh, what is it? What is it? And you don't want to say, now, what is your name again? After 17 years, that's kind of embarrassing. So, so you just kind of ignore them, or you just, you know. But now you can look them face to shoulder and say, hi. It's so great to see you, Nancy. I missed you last Sunday. It's so good to have you here. Or whatever. But Soup Sunday is a good time to use these name tags. So find somebody that you haven't met during Soup Sunday and say hi to them and introduce yourself. And say, hey, I know you probably know me for 17 years, but my name's Linda. <laughs> so, Linda, do you come to church here on Wednesday night for small groups? I do. You, well, tell us about them. You want me to tell you now? Okay, I'll tell you now. <laughs> so, Wednesday night, we had so much fun. Too much fun for church, okay, Joseph? <laughs> we have uh, small groups every, every Wednesday night through September, not just summer, but through September. Uh, small groups from 6.30 till 8. You're out uh, right away at 8 o'clock, so if you have to get home and get to bed and go to work the next morning, it's not a late night. And we sit in circles and we discuss the sermon from Sunday and how awful the pastor was. No. <laughs> that's, that's what it sounded like, but I'm kidding. No, we talk about, we talk, <laughs> he brings so much that we have to take a night to chew on it, really, truly. He is just so amazing. But we, we discuss what was talked about on Sunday morning, and then we pray with each other if we have needs. We get to know one another. This last Wednesday night, I love Wednesdays. It's my favorite. I've told you that before. But this last Wednesday night, we had Linda and... Gray, let me see. I'm trying to think. Linda, Grace, Luz, Robert, Joseph, Sherry, 
and Mark and Tina in our group. Well, Joseph and Sherry and Mark and Tina, we didn't know them very well, but I feel like I know them pretty well right now, don't you? <laughs> and I could tell you stories, but I won't. <laughs> but don't miss Wednesday night. It's so important. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Linda. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, there's something going on after church today that's uh, very important. If you're, whether you're new to New Song or you've been coming here for a long time, we have a thing called New Song Discovered. Linda and I attended that uh, some time ago and found out what makes this church tick. Uh, it's a kind of a behind-the-scenes look at what, uh, what goes on and why we do the things that we do. So it's really, really, really important. And so it takes place right after church today. So get your soup, and at 12 o'clock, go to the Kids Ministry Center. And so if you don't know where that is, you just it's go across over here and behind the church here, and it's right over there. So it's real easy to find. Uh, it's just you go there, and then you make a right, and then you go left, then you take the 10, and then you go to the 210, and then you take the, it's, it's pretty close. It's just right, it's within driving distance. And so if, if you're interested in the church, that's what you should do. Right in front of you in the back the seat, back seat, uh, the back of the seat in front of you are, is something we call the connect cards and also the giving cards and the prayer cards. So if you'd like uh, to have somebody contact you, and you'd like to connect with us, would you fill that out? There's a little, prayer bo- a little box outside. It's right as you're going out the door. And slip that card in that. If uh, you'd like to give to the church, um, there's some really nice invitation for you. And uh, if you want to give, there, there's, uh, it's all spelled out on that card how you can do that. And also on the screen, I see. <laughs> And then uh, also, if you have any prayer requests, you can do that, which brings me to our next item of business, which is to pray. So we've come here to exalt the Lord, and we did that. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people, and so we're here to do that. So would you join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing on our time together? Jesus, we come into your presence. Actually, we embrace your presence Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's promised to be here whenever we gather in your name. And so, Lord, we embrace you today. We purpose to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church, and we purpose to not just be hearers, but also to be doers. We pray your blessings upon our pastor as he opens the word, the inspired living word of God. We purpose to to listen and be led by your Spirit to understand everything. Now we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. It's Jim and Linda, right? Yeah. Linda Grant. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Good morning, everybody. We are in our Summer of Love series. It's like, I guess, week eight. Um, And the past four weeks have been kind of maybe different than you might have expected. But the first three were maybe fairly predictable, thinking about Jesus loves me, this I know, and the first three weeks were where the Bible tells me so. Uh, The next uh, four weeks were actually kind of a different vibe, Uh, really sort of about how we human beings uh, 
mainly because of our being made in the image of God, having his fingerprints all over us, that we cannot escape this longing that we have for God. So we talked about that. We talked about longings and how they might point to a God, a personal God who made us and who loves us and who draws us into relationship. We talked about our consciences, that the, the voice, which sometimes a literal voice, if you were there that, that week, you heard my conscience speaking, um, which kind of sometimes uh, condemns us and sometimes affirms our behavior. And there's something about that. We seem to have this desire to be and to act differently than how we actually do, um, pointing us toward, a, again, a personal God. Then we talked about creativity, how artistic expression seems to be very human and is somehow a way of expressing this desire, this longing for something greater than that which we experience in this world. And then last week, Melody talked about how we might understand that there's a loving God through our stories. And uh, some of you have been sharing stories, which is fantastic. Keep doing that, you know? It's one of the most wonderful things uh, to connect with somebody is either is to ask them, tell me a bit about your story. That's really, really, uh, not only does it cause um, us to, to maybe go, oh, me too, we have this sense of commonality that we're human beings together, but it, it just deepens these relationships. Wednesday night, as Jim and Linda said, is a fantastic place to do that. Sometimes they even get to, to talking about the sermon, um, but sometimes it's just, you know, connecting. And we actually say on Wednesday, the main purpose of this evening is to connect more deeply with each other. That's the main thing. It's not just about more knowledge, because we can do that till the cows come home and still be no further forward. We want to grow in our relationships with each other. That is where God is working uh, here, amen? Yes. So we've got, we've been, for four weeks, we've been kind of talking about kind of maybe a human-centered understanding about how we might know there's a God who loves us. This week, we're going completely different place and we're gonna talk about God's perspective about his love, about God's definite action in the world, how regardless of what we have done or felt or believed, he interrupted our human cycles and our human life and stepped into our world. This week, we're talking about how God's love is demonstrated in the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the cross tells me so. As the song says, Jesus loves me, he who died heaven's gates to open wide. And that's a simple way of saying it. The Apostle Paul, in a letter to a church in Philippi, was a bit more eloquent, and he wrote, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's quite common these days to hear people, people who claim to be atheists or have objections to this Christian faith, to just perhaps with no real evidence presented say, well, we're not even sure a guy called Jesus even existed, never mind whether he was crucified. You know, have you ever heard that? People sometimes are quick on the internet. I see comments, things all the time saying, well, it's all rubbish. There's no evidence for any of that. But often it's just repeated <clears throat> wisdom, which has very little basis in evidence. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that Jesus lived, that Jesus taught, and that Jesus was indeed crucified. 
uh, on a Roman cross. Well, the wonderful thing about the Christian faith is that it didn't take place in a land far, far away, some mythical place. The events that are described in the gospel took place on this earth. A long time ago, but on the earth. Someone once was telling me, you know, it's amazing. You can read the story of when Jesus uh, held up a coin and said, you know, whose inscription is on this coin? And he said, well, Caesar's, right? You can scrape around in the, in the uh, ground in that part of the world and maybe still find the same kind of Roman coin that Jesus held up. This is a real, on the earth, historical series of events. And there's lots of evidence for that. I mean, the gospels are eyewitness accounts. The gospel writers cared a lot about how they collected information and presented it to their listeners. But not only gospel writers, people who were um, not Christians at all. In fact, some who were even antagonistic toward the Christian faith did not want to see this story grow. Also refer to this event. There was a, a Jewish man, his name was Josephus, you might have heard of him, and he wrote a lot of histories of the Jewish people. And he wrote in one of his books, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and many of Greek origin. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. This is kind of a translation, so it's a little clunky to read. That's actually not the one that we find, but people have believed that in some, Christians have somewhat changed some of the words because it talks more fully, but most historians believe that this is kind of the truthful part of what Josephus wrote. He didn't receive Jesus as Messiah, but he did recognize that there was a man called Jesus. There was something remarkable about him uh, and that he was indeed crucified. And then there's a man, his name is Tacitus, Roman historian. And this guy hated Christians, at one point, he's writing, he'd, he'd under torture a couple of slave, slave uh, women. He had tortured them to try and find out why they believed so strongly in this story. And in, in his writings, he, he writes this. I'm stuck here. Hang on a second. Oh, it's attached to a wire. Okay, this is interesting. I'm learning a lot of new things this morning. Jim, Linda, what did you do to my, my stand? I'm kidding. He wrote this, Christus, from whom the name had its origin. So talking about Christianity, says the origin came from Christus, which is a Latin way of saying Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. But this man, not a friend to Christianity, in his writings expressed that this was a, indeed a true thing that happened. And another early evidence is this graffiti, which they think was done by some young school kid. You know, school kids like to graffiti things, don't they, sometimes, you know? They're either sticking gum under the table or they're scratching something into the table, whatever, right? This is a really, really early Roman graffiti, and it's kind of the thing that we do now, but it's mocking some classmate who is a Christian. They think it was perhaps in a military school, and what, what it says here is, Alexamenos worships his God. In Latin, that's what it says here. Someone is mocking their fellow student or pupil by drawing this kind of crucified thing with like a donkey's head. It's like a nasty thing to do, but it's a very early evidence of the, of the centrality of this idea of Christ being crucified. So clearly this event took place. Jesus 
lived and Jesus died and the method of his death was through crucifixion. But is it anything more than just a popular religious leader who taught for a season and who got in trouble with the authorities and met his death? End of story. Well, the gospel writers point us to something deeper, something profound, and it's about God's love. They tell us that in this sacrifice, this act, this death, is God's love is more than in any other way demonstrated to his creation and to us. Romans 5, 8, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. John again says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You remember the book Love Languages? Some people have, you know, what's it, quality time, acts of service, gifts, physical touch, all that stuff. It seems that God's love language is utter self-giving, complete sacrifice on behalf of the ones he loves, that there is, there is no end to how far he will go to bring us back into relationship with him. His love has effects and consequences, and he has shown this in the cross. Another important point to realize is not just God demonstrating his love through Jesus, okay, as if Jesus and God are somehow these separate entities that God sends a son to die, but rather it's God in Christ reconciling himself to the world by giving up his own life. Again, Philippians, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Another thing that people say in uh, protest against this idea is that what a terrible thing that God would send an innocent one to die for sinners. But the truth of the gospel is that in Christ dying is God himself giving up his life for those whom he loves. So how do we see God's love in this? Well, I thought a good way to think about this is to look at the things that Jesus said while he was hanging on the cross. There are seven things through the gospels that it says that Jesus uttered while he was hanging there, while he'd been fixed to this cross. He said seven things. And they tell us a lot about what this means for us and especially how it demonstrates God's love to us. The very first thing that is reported that Jesus said in Luke 23 is this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. I guess really, that latter part is a really description of the human race. They do not know what they are doing. Forgive them. The first thing is forgiveness. God's love is shown in the cross of Christ by the forgiveness that it brings to us. 
And what's so remarkable at this, the fact that it's so great that Jesus says this from the cross is who he is talking about. He is talking about the people who surround him that day, who led him up the hill, who nailed him to the cross, who stand around mocking him. It's the worst position you could be in in relationship to God giving his life for you is these people. And he particularly points out asking his father to forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. There was a gate, a door opening up that would bring forgiveness to even the most despicable, wicked, mocking, cruel people who were there that day. That is forgiveness. That is grace. Beyond what we can do, can any of us say that we could ever be in that position? We see this immensity of forgiveness that he calls out from the cross, not for revenge, not for justice, but for forgiveness for these people. All fall short of the glory of God. If his forgiveness can be offered for the ones who nailed him there, his forgiveness is open for each of us, regardless of where we've been and what we have done. Romans 5, 6 says, you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We do not know what we are doing, and Christ died for the ungodly. 2 Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that act, this door opened that no one can ever close again, that we can be cleansed, we can be forgiven, no matter what we have done or where we have been. The second thing that Jesus said on the cross was to a thief who was also hanging on a cross that day. You may know the story. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And one of them was mocking him. One of them was saying, hey, save yourself, save us if you're this special Messiah person. Which is not, I mean, not an inhuman kind of thing to do, right? I think I may be in that camp and say, this is my opportunity. Hey, save me. But the other one, recognizing his sinfulness, his brokenness, the fact that in some ways he had been a wicked man, a thief, and in some ways this was not unjust, the position he had found himself in. But when he recognized who this one hanging here was, this innocent one, this savior, he asked, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say in reply? Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today, you will be, be with me in paradise. So what do we see about God's love in this, this cross and this interaction and these words of Jesus? We see hope for the hopeless. Hope for the hopeless. What a position to be in. Have you ever got to a point in your life where you realize, like, I've done it. I'm done. I have. I don't think there's any way back from this. I've, I've broken things. I've, I've burned too many bridges. I'm hopeless. I think this demonstrates that in this man, there is no 
darker, more hopeless place to get than suffering one of the most despicable, shameful, awful deaths and realizing there's nothing you can do about it. But what an opportunity. And he recognizes this man, Jesus, whether he heard about him and he comes to this point where with his last dying breaths, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus doesn't say, well, you better shape up first, or, you know, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. That is love. The next thing that Jesus says is, uh, he says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And this teaches us about trust. This teaches us about trust. What is remarkable about Jesus and this concept of the cross is that Jesus was not spared the agony. Before then in the garden, he knelt down and prayed and said, if there be any other way, let this pass from me but not my will, but your will be done. So he entered into this place of sorrow and death and suffering. But he teaches us that no matter what is happening, we can trust God with our lives, with everything. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He was surrounded by hands that sought to harm him, but he was focused on the fact that the hands of his father were holding him. Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. We can trust him. The next thing Jesus is reported to have said in John 19 is these three words, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. You know, and the context of that passage, the, the writer John says, to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. But that's kind of like something that John is saying. John is saying, see, the Old Testament says that he will do this and he'll be thirsty. But I think in the concept of Jesus as a human being hanging on the cross, what that teaches us is about weakness. About, do you ever feel weak? Do you ever feel that you don't have power? Do you ever feel that because you don't have power and you feel weak, you're actually not very in step with God? You know, because our culture teaches us that if you are holy, you're close to God, then you'll have power and you'll be sufficient and capable and all these wonderful, powerful things. And Jesus shows us that you can be weak. And Paul talks about this. He says, Paul was struggling with this as a, as a missionary, as a pastor. He was bowed down with weight of his mission and the opposition that he felt spiritually and physically and, and in all ways. 
And he had prayed to God because he had this issue that was weighing him down. He was struggling that made him feel weak, made him feel incapable of doing what he was supposed to do. And he prayed, God, please take this away from me. Let me be strong. Let me be Superman. Let me be, be the hero. Let me be capable of all these things. And he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The world looks at the cross and sees weakness. The world looks at the cross and sees failure. The world looks at the cross and sees the end. God flips everything around and says that in this complete self-giving, this humility, that's real strength and that's real power. There's one, a line in a song by the band The Brilliance. I don't know if you ever guys have heard of this band, but I'd never heard this before in a song. We always sing about triumphant stuff, that Jesus is coming in and on a big horse and, and we should be these superheroes of strength and power. And this line says, Jesus, come in your weakness. Save us from ourselves. Come in your weakness. Wouldn't it be incredible if all of God's people had that quality about them of, of I don't mean weakness in, in a sense of, moral failure, I mean weakness in the sense of surrender, of an understanding that we don't have power in and of ourselves. We can't fix the world, we can't even fix ourselves. And the love of God that is shown in Jesus when he hands and says, I am thirsty. It teaches us that if you are feeling weak today, if you're feeling defenseless, if you're feeling that you are not capable, you're just weary, you're tired, God is with you. And actually, in that, you are strong because he brings down the mighty and he raises up the humble. And then Jesus says this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. This talks about victory. This talks about victory. Notice that he bowed his head. He gave up his spirit. And in that, all of the death, the evil, the wickedness, the darkness was defeated. Colossians 2 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It is finished. Mark reports, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
What does this teach us about this God of love who gave his life for us? It teaches us about solidarity. Solidarity. How many of us have cried out those same words? Where are you, God? I feel forsaken. When heaven met earth in the body of Christ hung on the cross, he reached into our mess as low as he could go and he identified with himself in all of our painful places. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Solidarity. There is nowhere we can go in life, whether by our own actions or by the actions of others done to us, where Christ is not present, does not reside in fellowship with us, in solidarity with human beings, with us. John says, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. What does this tell us? I don't think these expressions that the, that the writers reported are accidents. And I think this tells us about community. I think that in the death of Christ, we are welcomed into community. The fact that he singled out his disciple and his mother to become a family in community tells us that in this act, the barriers that were between us are broken and we are now family. Ephesians 2 says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He was surrounded by people of all kinds, Romans and Jewish people, all standing watching him die. And as he gave up his life, he offered them the opportunity, which started to happen not long after that in the church, of becoming one community in and through him. Isaac Watts wrote this amazing song we sing at Easter sometimes. It says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So how do we receive the the benefits, the love that is shown in the cross of Christ. Well, on that day, there were people who rejected, who failed to see what was happening, who rejected it, but there was also someone who seemed to have understood. In Luke 23, people were mocking Jesus. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. It's interesting that these were the people who were 
believing themselves to be righteous, believing themselves to have no need of, of this radical love, this, this act of God. But there's one person standing there that day who had a different response to what he saw, and he was a Roman, a centurion, probably one of the commanders who had commanded his men to nail Jesus to the cross. And standing there and witnessing this man, he had an insight, an understanding that was given to him. And he says this, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. You know, I, I could try, and this is the hard thing today, okay, to logically prove to you <clears throat> without a shadow of a doubt that the death of Christ on the cross was significant and changes everything. And I could do that by pure logic, Sometimes we try and do that, you know? We try and say this plus this plus this equals this. Here's the problem, though. If you can, by pure human logic and argumentation, argue someone into the faith, someone can argue them back out of the faith again, right? That's why this sign over here says at the beginning to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. The events of that day were not in the control completely of the people who were present that day. What they saw was what they saw, but God was working. And this man, who is the worst of the sinners, enemy of the people of God, invader, conqueror, far from home, blood on his hands, was the one who saw what he needed to see and declared that Jesus was a righteous man. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's one of the hardest things about preaching, because I want everyone to know Jesus. And the struggle this week was to actually be weak. <laughs> That's kind of cool, right? The struggle this week was to be weak. I fought it all week, and I'm still fighting it this morning. I want to convince you and I just love how God is like, no, you will not get the glory grant. <laughs> I've struggled up until this morning. I'm like, but what's that nugget that's going to make everyone just nod their heads and go like, yes, that seals it. And this is why I'm talking about you can have your conscience, you can have your longings, you can have your art, you can have your story. But this is decisively the place where God himself is in control by losing all control by giving up his life for you, for me. And he can impart to us faith in this, regardless of how well I communicate it, how logical I am, how wonderful I am. I love that you said, you know, we talk about how bad the pastor was, you know? I got a fragile ego, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and I think this Roman guy and the people, it tells us something true. Because the, the ones who most need this will identify in themselves this longing and this connection with this story. I was thinking, it's interesting, you know, how do we get to the crux of the matter? It was a phrase that kept occurring to me this week. How do we get to the crux of the matter? Have you heard that phrase? And the crux means cross. 
right? Crux means cross. So the crux of the matter, it really is a response to this. How do we take this for ourselves? Well, Jesus, before he was crucified, said these words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? I think it means that all of the blessing and benefit of Christ's love in the cross are ours in our own recognition and pursuit of, of this humility, this ability to be weak. And so we receive the forgiveness. We receive hope. We can put our trust in God. We can accept this victory. We can be okay with our weakness. We recognize and celebrate the solidarity that God has shown with us and we press into community. The cross is more than just forgiveness. You say, take up your cross daily and follow. What does that mean? I've struggled for a long time wondering to know, what does it mean to take up your cross? Does it mean like, um, hate myself? You know, think less of myself? I think it includes all of these things. Taking up my cross means receiving in my life what Christ won for me in that cross. I am a cross bearer in his likeness in some ways that I can be forgiven, experience hope, put my trust in him, have the victory, be weak, and in that be strong, have solidarity with him and this community. Galatians 2, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm gonna pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing love that you did not stand by and watch us in our broken condition that you entered into our world. You bought forgiveness for us. You identified with us in the darkest of places that we could ever go to. Uh, your love has persisted for each one of us, regardless of where we have been and what we have done. Lord, we receive that love and that forgiveness this morning. Father, we are your people. And we're your people not because we chose to be, not because we gain anything from that, but simply because you have redeemed each one of us and you've called us brothers and sisters. Thank you for the sacrifice that makes that possible. And we praise you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go have communion.
Now, I think this is a, we always talk about how communion connects with anything that we talk about in here, and particularly today, we talk about Jesus' body and his blood, his sacrifice. As you prepare, I'm going to read a little bit of a hymn written a long time ago, because we're going to get out of our seats, if you're able, and come and receive the bread and the cup. And wherever we are today, I think this can express our, the, our direction, where we're going, our longings. Out of my prison, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come, into your freedom, gladness and light, Jesus I come to you. Out of my sickness, into your health, out of my want, and into your wealth, out of my sin and into yourself, Jesus, I come to you. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of your cross, Jesus, I come to you. Out of earth's sorrows, into your balm, out of life's storms and into your calm, out of distress to jubilant psalm, Jesus, I come to you. Out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Into your blessed will to abide, Jesus I come to you. Out of myself to dwell in your love, out of despair into raptures above, upward forever on wings like a dove, Jesus I come to you. We come Lord Jesus this morning in response to your love from right where we are, with all of that means, all that is challenging to us today. Thank you, Lord, that in you, there is no suffering that you have not encountered and that you will not meet us in. Amen. In your own time, you can come down to the front to the back and receive the elements, uh, the bread and the cup, and then we'll hold them and take them together shortly. Jesus and his disciples gathered to have a meal. It was the Passover. And for generations, his friends had been gathering with their families to take the Passover and to remember when their people had been set free from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus brought new meaning to that at the table. And, and what is remarkable about this, I think, is always like the disciples did not know what he was talking about, but what he was doing was not dependent on their understanding at that moment what was happening. They would, they would learn, they would grow. That's comforting to me because sometimes I feel a bit clueless about what God, God is doing in my life. But, but this tells me that he is, he is faithful and he is always laying out the path before my feet 
So I simply want to be responsive and obedient to what he tells me to do in that moment. He said to his disciples, take this bread. This is my body, which is for you. And they ate the bread together. Let's take that bread. And then he took a cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are always prior, that you are the initiator of everything that we need, and we're simply called to respond. So Lord, be all that you are for us today. Be the one that forgives us. Be the one that brings us hope when we feel hopeless. Be our brother, be our savior, be our friend. Be the one that gives us victory. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us into your kingdom. We say amen.